Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Welcome to today's show. I want to try something a bit different today. Instead of just diving down into some of the details of evidence for creation from the world around us, I want to back up a bit and think about the big picture. What is it we're doing here? Why does origins even matter? You know, who cares? Well, if you give it a bit of thought, you'll realize that our origins tell us who or what we are. And ultimately, that is what gives any meaning to life, if there is any. If we're really just evolved pond scum, as they say, then, you know, we can try to manufacture meaning, but it's really just only our imagination There isn't any ultimate meaning at all. And many evolutionists have written about this, the fact that life is meaningless. Eventually, humans will go extinct or evolve into something else and will simply cease to be. Since I really began to think about this many decades ago, I've noticed constantly themes related to this issue throughout our culture, especially in the arts and media. And I'm one of those old rock and roll fans who actually wanted to know what the lyrics are to the songs and would listen to things repeatedly until I understood the lyrics if they were difficult. And my wife thinks I should probably apologize for this, but I'm actually an old fan of the Jefferson Airplane, if any of you are old enough to even remember them. And they did a fascinating little song back in about 1968 that speaks directly to this issue. The title of the song is crown of creation. Listen to a bit of it here and listen carefully to what they say. Well, Paul Kantner captured the evolutionary view of who man is in just those couple of lyrics from this song. It says, You are the crown of creation, and you've got no place to go. Soon you'll attain the stability you strive for in the only way that it's granted in a place among the fossils of our time. So ultimately, we're simply going to disappear just like the creatures that are fossilized. Now, on the other hand, the opposite end of the spectrum is the biblical view where man is specially created by God in his image and is destined to spend eternity in close communion living with God if we want to, if we're willing to accept the salvation that he offers us. So it's pretty obvious that those two alternatives are rather different. So origins is an important topic. Well, I've been thinking about the various ways that people seem to react to the data related to origins, and I believe they could be grouped into seven different categories. 
So I want to discuss it in that way. And the background thought as we discuss all of this is, how should a true seeker of truth be approaching this issue? That is, what should you do if you really want to know where we came from? On today's show, we're not talking about specific types of data related to origins, but rather we're discussing how is it that people approach this whole issue and the information and data that's available to us. We're going to group the reactions into seven different categories just for discussion purposes. Number one, atheistic evolutionists who exhibit antagonistic defiance when they're presented with data supportive of the creationist view They simply assert that creationists are lying and the data does not exist. For example, we're told that creationists lied about the soft dino tissue that was found in a T-Rex bone when it had actually been published and has now been substantiated completely by many further finds, both within that bone and other dinosaur fossils. But it was shouted that we were making it up. The ignorance of the people in this group is actually embarrassing, but what's more appalling about it is they dominate many internet forums, and I've seen Christian evolutionists quote the arguments from these sources as though they're meaningful arguments. This group of people often blatantly misrepresent the actual data, but that shouldn't be a surprise considering that some of them have actually said it's perfectly okay to lie to you to get your trust, and to get you to believe evolution. Here's a famous example of a completely false statement of that type. Richard Dawkins said, It is absolutely safe to say that if you meet someone who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that. Blatantly false statement. But there are many such false statements promulgated by people in this category, so just be aware of that. Category number two, Christians who say they believe the Bible, but also believe the consensus science account of origins and try to reinterpret the Bible accordingly. And many of these seem to take the consensus science arguments without any critical thinking at all. And they completely ignore the data, for example, from the intelligent design community. This group is so convinced that the standard science view Big Bang and Evolution, is so well established that they absolutely must reinterpret the Bible accordingly. And so the account of origins in the Bible becomes a mythical story designed to convey spiritual truths, but has nothing to do with history. This view is increasingly dominant within Christian academia, and most Bible faculties at Christian universities primarily hold this view of Scripture. Now, since the New Testament itself quotes from the Old Testament account of origins as history, and in fact quotes Jesus as referring to these events as history, this creates a bit of a dilemma. And there's a current academic move toward reinterpreting Paul, since he wrote about it specifically, and basically the idea is Paul didn't know what he was talking about. He believed the mythical views of origins that were common in his day and was not enlightened like we are now, and so he was simply wrong. This reinterpretation of Paul is getting more and more airtime within Christian academia also. So this category encompasses a large part of the Christian community. Let's move on to a third category, 
This is Christians who believe the Bible, but don't even want to discuss the conflicts between consensus science origins theories and scriptural content. For them, the whole discussion is really a non-issue, and they'll often say something like, well, I just have faith. So these Christians aren't personally challenged by the claims made in the science community, but they're also ill-prepared to talk to those who are challenged and confused by these issues. And in fact, Christians are told to be prepared to give an answer for the reason for the hope that we have, but to do it in gentleness and respect. So my opinion is that in some ways, this group of Christians are simply not prepared to give an answer for what they believe, and it might serve them well to pay some attention to this area. I think that some of them are actually a bit afraid of the topic, and so stay away from it for fear of where it might lead them. Uh, They need not have those fears if they pay attention to all of the evidence, but nonetheless, that seems to be where they're at. I think that many Christians who are in this group are older, and while they were growing up, almost all the commentaries adapted some form of gap theory or some other accommodation of billions of years and evolution theory into their interpretation of Scripture. Even the footnotes in the Schofield Bible heavily promoted the gap theory. So these things created a lot of confusion. And the fact is there wasn't much good creationist material available actually until well into the 70s probably. The explosion of available material in the last 15 to 20 years is truly amazing. At the end of the show, I'll provide info on some really good resources for a creationist view of science and origins. So you might want to be ready to take some notes, or you can go to my website, creationmythormiracle.com, And I'll list the resources there as well. We're discussing various ways that people deal with the information and data related to the question of origins and where we come from. So far, we've discussed three different categories. Let's move on to the fourth one. And that is Christian creationists who believe the biblical history of creation, but are rather ignorant of the evidence for the consensus science view. Unfortunately, they sometimes present really bad arguments against evolution or the Big Bang, and they sometimes present really bad arguments about what they say the Bible teaches. The truth is, a few of them are just way out there in left field with their own pet theories of how things happened, and really nobody else seems to have the same understanding. But sometimes they've picked up some older creationist arguments from decades ago that turned out to be not well substantiated once the data was dug into more deeply. And these arguments have been dropped by knowledgeable creationists long ago, and for good reasons, and yet some of these people continue to promote them. Because of this, Creation Ministries International at creation.com actually published an article titled, Arguments We Think Creationists Should Not Use. This is an attempt to make creationists aware of arguments that may have been used in the past but have factual difficulties, and there's simply no need to use bad arguments because there's plenty of perfectly good ones to use. I'll give you a couple of examples because you may have heard these arguments. It has been said that Darwin recanted on his deathbed. Many people use this story originally from a lady hope, However, it's almost certainly not true, and there's no corroboration from those who were closest to him, even from Darwin's wife, Emma, who never liked evolutionary ideas. But perhaps more importantly, even if it were true, so what? 
If a prominent creationist recanted creation, what would that prove? Would that disprove creation? There's no value to this argument whatsoever. Here's another one you may have heard, that the moon dust thickness proves a young moon. That is, the amount of dust on the moon is way too small given the accumulation rate for the moon to be very old. Now, I remember hearing this particular argument back in the mid-70s when I first started paying attention to this whole issue. The way it was usually portrayed was the following. There's a lot of accumulation of dust going on every year on the moon, and NASA is so concerned about how deep the dust is, they're afraid the lunar lander will disappear into the dust. Well, where did this idea come from? Actually, an evolutionist, Peterson, had published data on the accumulation rate that turned out to be wrong. The actual annual rate of dust accumulation is much smaller than the amount estimated by Peterson, and this argument was based on his data. So 20 years ago, Andrew Snelling and others published an article, a technical article, about this issue and pointed out what the actual data is and that it doesn't really provide any argument against the age of the moon. One interesting thing they discovered in researching this was that theistic evolutionists from Calvin College had published a book titled Science Held Hostage, and they clobbered creationists for making a false argument about moon dust. However, the figure they arrived at for the accumulation of dust was only one-twentieth of what it should have been from the literature they themselves consulted. So in their zeal to prove creationists wrong, they actually sort of embarrassed themselves. Now, the moon dust argument was very popular because it's easy to understand and explain. And it was actually a valid argument given Peterson's estimates. But once better data became known, it simply needed to be dropped. The article about what arguments we think creationists should not use also lists a set of arguments that are doubtful and so are inadvisable to use. They're not proven wrong, but they're doubtful. Perhaps what's important to note is that among knowledgeable creationists, there really is an attempt to get the facts right and to discard outdated arguments if new data shows up that precludes them being valid. It would certainly be wrong for somebody who believes in the Bible to deliberately use a false argument to try to convince someone of the truth of the Bible. So sometimes the easy-to-explain-and-understand arguments need to be discarded, and we need to continue to do our homework. So far on this show, we've discussed four different categories of ways people deal with the data related to origins. Let's move on to a fifth one. This is a group of Darwin skeptics, some Christians, some not, who are very aware of the actual evidence within the realm of biology and biochemistry, molecular biology, etc., and they see evidence for the design of life. They are often extremely knowledgeable of the inadequacies of Darwinian, neo-Darwinian theories, and the other basic approaches taken within the realm of evolution to try to explain the life we observe. They can be very knowledgeable of the difficulties there. But the vast majority of this group simply accept the standard consensus view of geology and cosmology. They do not accept biblical creation. They believe, generally, the Big Bang is well-established, and the Earth is 4.58 billion years old, and the fossils are as old as people claim they are, etc. They accept that entire mainstream view, but they understand that evolution can't explain 
the features we see within living creatures, and many of them are very well aware that materialistic evolution cannot explain the origin of life either. There are many PhD scientists within this group. There are also many theistic evolutionists that are actually within this group. Although many other theistic evolutionists are adamantly against the idea that you can recognize intelligent design within life, in fact, some theistic evolutionists seem to be more committed to Darwinism than most atheist evolutionists are. Rather ironic to me. I believe that probably the majority of the scientists involved in the intelligent design movement would fall into this category. There are other intelligent design advocates who are full-on young earth creationists, but I suspect the majority of them would be in this category and accept the Big Bang and the ancient earth ideas. I've always found it interesting that within a scientist's area of specialty, they can recognize the difficulties of the mainstream scientific arguments and be willing to go against those, but in the areas that are not their specialty, there they simply accept what mainstream science tells them. For example, biochemist and genetics researcher Michael Denton wrote a book titled Evolution, A Theory, and Crisis, and clobbered the mainstream evolution ideas within that book. However, an early chapter was titled Genesis Rejected, and it was entirely based upon what geologists say. This fifth group is a fairly large one, I believe. Now, a sixth category, the way I've broken it down, would be non-Christian Big Bang skeptics. Generally, they seem to be trying to hang on to an eternal universe for theistic reasons. That would be atheistic reasons. They don't want there to be a beginning to the universe. This group has pointed out some very valid objections to the Big Bang support, but in their attempts to promote their own ideas as to what the history of the universe is, the science seems to be a bit weak. There's an organization called the Alternative Cosmology Group that you can find at the website cosmology.info. They've had a couple of Crisis in Cosmology conferences, and young Earth creationist, physicist, and cosmologist Dr. John Hartnett actually attended them. The last conference was in 2008, and Dr. Hartnett commented on it as follows, There was a lot of emotion and little agreement among the attendees. At times, emotions were so strong that discussion became heated. But these men are passionate, and I believe it is better to be passionate and seek a better answer than to passively accept a flawed model. There's desire among them to expose the Big Bang, but they really don't know how to proceed. It seems to again be a battle between David and Goliath. While Van Flandern, one of the main speakers, as stated earlier, was very upfront about rejecting miracles, others didn't necessarily agree. As one told me, that supposes he knows all that can be known about the universe. It's a pity that this talented group is so against the notion of a creator who told us that he did create the universe in a very specific way some 6,000 years ago as measured by earth clocks. It's only left up to us to find out some of the details. The seventh group that I want to discuss would be the one that I belong to, and Dr. Hartnett that I just mentioned also is a member of this group. That would be Christian creationists who are very familiar with the scientific data and the problems and how it's used to claim support for the consensus science view. This group is familiar with how the data does support a creation history and time scale, and there are many Ph.D. scientists among this group's ranks. 
A few years ago, creationist physicist Russ Humphreys estimated that there were probably many thousands of creationist scientists, but many of them have to be silent about their views on origins in order to avoid losing their jobs. But you would be surprised how many there are that aren't so silent and yet are full-on scientists. The view that's out there in the public that there are no creation scientists that know what they're talking about or do real science is simply a false view. We've been discussing the various ways that people deal with the concept of origins. That's often a controversial subject, and people range all the way from angry atheists that attack any believer to Ph.D. scientists who fully accept the biblical account of history and are young earth creationists. Well, that raises a question. What should a real seeker do? If someone really wants to investigate this, how should they go about it? Let's restrict our discussion to only dealing with the evidence in the world around us, not any direct activity of the Holy Spirit. So what should a seeker do? Well, first, be aware that all data is interpreted to reach conclusions. Don't allow someone to present their conclusions to you as if it were data. For example, saying a T-Rex bone is 68 million years old is presenting you with a conclusion, saying that the strata it's found in has certain radioisotopes at a certain ratio, that would be data. Second, understand that consensus science is not science at all. Real science is driven by data, not the majority opinion. Third, be very, very aware of how materialism, naturalism, atheism is used to restrict allowable interpretations within mainstream science, hence the efforts to disallow intelligent design from being considered at all. Fourth, don't jump to conclusions. The mainstream science view is completely materialistic and is constantly promoted on TV and media, public schools, and almost all higher academic programs. Be aware that almost everyone has seen a very biased view of the info related to origins. So seek to balance your view. Much creationist scientific interpretations and research is available for free. This program, for example, thousands of articles are available on scientific questions about origins from a creationist view, from layman-level articles, from children's articles, to referee technical articles. I'll mention several good sources now, and also will put this in the blog on my website. For research, see Creation Ministries International at creation.com. Answers in Genesis at AnswersInGenesis.org, the Creation Research Society at CreationResearch.org, the Institute for Creation Research at ICR.org, also the Creation Science Fellowship at CSFPittsburgh.org, and they host the International Conference on Creationism, the ICC, which is at CreationICC.org. There's also the Creation Museum just outside Cincinnati which is a one-of-a-kind resource and very well worth your time to go visit. Unlike any other museum I've ever seen, they go out of their way to try to explain to you how it is that the perspective and bias of the researcher influences how they interpret the data and to make the distinction between data and interpretations. Incredibly important. There are also many useful blogs. My own is a new one and doesn't have a huge amount of info yet, but I suspect it's still useful to some of you. 
Another one that's been around a while that's quite good is Real Science Radio at rsr.org. Bottom line, there's plenty of information available to you. You can research this and learn things. Take advantage of these opportunities. Ask questions. Carefully consider the answers that are given. And unfortunately, you must keep in mind that evolutionists have said it's okay to lie to you to get your trust and to get you to believe in evolution. So just be aware of that and be a skeptic. Be a critical thinker. Lastly, remember that the Apostle Paul wrote that the evidence for God is there in the creation around us so that if we deny it, we are without excuse. That's an extremely important thing. According to the Bible, Satan's goal is to keep you away from God and his tactic is lies and deception. So open your eyes, use your brains, and consider these things. See creationmythormiracle.com for more info. 